Hello and welcome to the Danielle Newnham podcast where I interview tech founders and innovators to learn the inspiring human stories behind the game-changing tech we use every day. Today's guest is Mike Slade, a seasoned storyteller who worked with Bill Gates, Paul Allen and Steve Jobs. Mike started his career at Microsoft in 1983 and spent seven years in a variety of product marketing roles, launching hugely successful products including Excel, Works and Microsoft Office. He then went to work at Next as VP of Marketing, reporting directly to Steve Jobs. Paul Allen, co-founder of Microsoft, then hired Mike Slade as CEO of Starwave, which was his trailblazing venture into the internet and multimedia space ahead of most other people. While building Starwave, Mike launched ESPN.com, NBA.com, NFL.com and many others. Following the company's sale to Disney, Mike went back to Steve Jobs and joined Apple's executive team as Steve's strategic advisor. As I said before, Mike is an incredible storyteller, so expect to hear some wonderfully funny, insightful and even touching stories about his time with these three innovators. But before we get into the episode, I wanted to tell you about today's sponsor, Wave, the coaching app used by leaders at all the top tech companies from Google to Amazon and Stripe. And for less than 20 euros a month, you too can access your very own executive coach and reach your work and life goals using the power of AI combined with actual human coaches. It's funny because we always expect to see elite athletes using coaches, but just imagine what applying that same support could do to your life and work. Whether you're struggling with work challenges such as leadership, time management or problem solving, Wave is the app to use. I signed up recently and I'm already looking forward to my first session next week. I know lots of founders and CEOs who need and want outside help, but don't know where to go or don't have the time or money to get that help. And whilst many current apps and methodologies for professional growth are outdated, I think Wave is doing something completely different and innovative and is one of the most time and cost-effective ways I have seen to help you set, measure and achieve your goals. So what are you waiting for? Hit the link in today's show notes to try out Wave for under 20 euros a month. It's an absolute bargain. And now, back to today's episode with the brilliant Mike Slade. Mike, I wanted to ask you, what were you like growing up? And what were some childhood experiences that you think may have shaped you? Oh, that's an interesting question. Well, I grew up in Portland, Oregon, and I was the fourth kid. So the parenting that was used was the benign neglect school of parenting. And my father died when I was 11 in a car accident. And my mother kind of checked out afterwards for various reasons. So I kind of raised myself and we were fairly well off. So it wasn't like we were, it wasn't a Dickens novel or something, but um, I was kind of on my own. So I spent a lot of my time uh, kind of running around to other people's houses and kind of figuring out how more normal people live kind of by osmosis, if that makes any sense. And so I became a very people-oriented person. That is, I was always very attuned to what are people doing? How are they doing it? How are they living? You know, what do they do all day long? You know, it's like well, that children's book, what do people do all day, right? That was kind of my whole life. <laughs> I went to private school. I went to college. I was a jock. I played sports. I wrote, I was the sports editor in my high school newspaper. I was the sports editor in my college newspaper. And while I was in college, um, 
I went to college to a place called Colorado College, which is a liberal arts college in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And while I was there, I was the sports editor of the school paper. And then I got a job working for the local newspaper. And um, I'd always been a real sports nut as a kid, compiling statistics and memorizing lineups and been just a real sports geek as a little kid from the, to the moment I could read. So I got a job with this newspaper and it was a daily newspaper with like 100,000 circulation. And by the time I was a senior in college, I was a bylined daily sports writer writing articles every day. And I probably did that more than I went to college. It was really, really fun. I'd at night, I'd go play poker with the sports writers. I was 21 years old and living kind of like a 30-year-old. And um, it was really fun. It was a really cool thing to have done. And anyway, what happened was between my junior and senior year of college, which was 1978, the newspaper went digital. So in those days, the way you created a newspaper was you typed an article on a typewriter on a piece of paper, double-spaced, handed it to the editor. He marked it up in pencil. And then they sent it to typesetting, which was a room downstairs where a guy on a mechanical machine turned it into a giant piece of iron, and then it got printed. And that happened everywhere. That fall, when I came back from my summer vacation in Portland, the Gazette, the paper I worked for, the Colorado Springs Gazette, had gone digital. And we now had a mini computer-based system that you edited the paper on that had the entire AP Sports and Newswire and Reuters on it in digital form, in a screen, in a CRT, with 80 by 25 characters flashing by. And you ended, you typed in obscure codes, kind of like you later used in things like WordStar and stuff. And then you set the paper that day, and then they had electronic typesetting equipment and this beautiful offset printing press, and this beautiful, the paper had colored pictures, and it was, and it was A, amazing, and B, the sixth newspaper in the U.S. to go digital, just by coincidence, because that was owned by a large chain called Freedom Newspapers. The flagship newspaper was a thing called the Orange County Register, which is located south of LA. And at the time, had the third most classified as of any newspaper in the world. Well, first of all, thank you for opening up about your childhood. I always ask people about mm -hmm. this because I really do believe that it gives the context for who you are as a person, which I think is, is very true. Uh, oh, yeah. The reason I was into sports stats is because I was kind of by myself all the time. And so yeah. I was just typing up stats and compiling stuff. But so... This thing of going to a digital newspaper, it means that for a guy like me who was a sports fan, when I was, I would sit at my desk, write my local paper, like a high school basketball game, and then I'd help the sports editor put the paper to bed because it was a morning newspaper with a midnight deadline. And I had the entire AP sports wire in front of me. So for a guy who 18 years later created ESPN.com, I had basically the same thing in front of me in 1978. And I literally would look through it the way people now look through things like ESPN.com and NBA.com and, you know, any other sports site. I would go through every box score and every game story and stats and background. And, you know, I just, that's all I would do. And I, so all I ever wanted to tell you the truth. And so what happened was I graduated from college. I went on a trip to Europe. I went back to Portland. I worked for two years. I went to Stanford Business School. I went to Microsoft. And then I went to work for Steve Jobs at Next, and then I started this company, Starwave. So along the way, I was still a jock. Uh, I would get up in the morning and open the Seattle Times. And if you're a newspaper guy like me, you actually open the newspaper all the way unfolded and then turn it over. You don't read it folded because you want to see the entire layout of the pages. And I would critique the layout, and I, I would wish there were more pages and complain about the business model and it wasn't enough coverage of this or that. And so what happened was in 1986, when I was a hardworking young executive at Microsoft, we were all really into biking. And I did a bunch of 200 mile bike races and 
in one day and was a super big jock. I would bike, I would run, do biathlons. And um, we were all really into the Tour de France because in 1986, an American won the Tour de France for the first time ever, a guy named Greg Lamont. And Greg Lamont was much more important than Lance Armstrong for two reasons. One is he didn't cheat. And two is he pioneered the use of aerodynamic handlebars and helmets. No, they'd never been used before. He used technology, which came from triathlons. And in the final of the Tour de France that year, he beat this French guy, Laurent Fignon, who was riding the Tour de France with a ponytail, no helmet, and um, no aerodynamic handlebars. And Lamont beat him in the final time trial by like eight seconds. So it was all because of aerodynamics. So it was really, really cool. And it was the cover of Sports Illustrated. So anyway, the reason I'm telling you the story is that in those days, believe it or not, the only way to find out what happened in the Tour de France was to wait until the next morning when the New York Times came out. There was literally no way to find out what was going on. It wasn't online. There was no radio. There was no TV. And there was no online services, right? But there was CompuServe. And Microsoft had a corporate account to CompuServe. You had like a 1,200 baud modem. And it was four bucks a minute to read the same AP sports wire that I used to read back when I was in college. So I would go on with the Microsoft account and read the whole damn thing and cut and paste the results and email them around to like 50 friends of mine and write a little write-up of so that was the first online sports service. <laughs> so anyway, I left Microsoft and I went to work for Next. I got sick of working at a big company and I was Steve Jobs' VP of marketing for two years. And when I was there, while I was there, the internet started happening. It was happening in a very rudimentary way. It was really only the, a, a playground for college professors and researchers and people who sold educational software. And since Next's original focus was selling workstations to colleges and research institutions. We knew all about it. And so you could FTP files around. I saw my first porn file ever on a next machine in black and white from some FTP server in Minnesota. That was the start of the internet porn. Uh, and then, um, but the web browser didn't exist. You just kind of could transfer files around. And of course you could email people. And then Tim Berners-Lee, who's a famous guy who worked at CERN, the research institute in Switzerland, created this prototype of the web browser on a next machine, because that's what they used at CERN. So we all knew about the World Wide Web in 1991 and 1992. But we all thought like, oh, it's just for scientists and people with fast connections. No one's ever gonna use this shit. So then when I left Next to do my startup for Paul Allen, Starwave, I knew the internet was coming. And Paul's whole charter to me was, here's $50 million to go build cool stuff in anticipation of it coming rather than waiting for it to come. And so we built a whole bunch of cool stuff some of which was cool and stupid, and some of which was not stupid. And the, the least stupid one was building the world's biggest sports section, which I'd wanted to do since I was in college and I always wanted to do. And Paul was like, absolutely, it's a great idea. Let's go do it. So we started building it. Uh, we had to build a bunch of internal tools. We were the first people to ever parse a wire feed. And that means in real time, we took a wire feed and turned it into logical branches and nodes. Um, then we were searching for a platform to launch this thing on and CompuServe didn't make any sense and AOL didn't make any sense and Microsoft's MSN didn't really make any sense. And we decided because there was nothing else that worked to just do it on the web, even though the web seemed like a high-end researchy kind of a thing. But a bunch of us had come from that world, from the Unix world, the Sun world, the next world. And so we launched it and we begged ESPN to partner with us and we negotiated with them for 700 days and we promised them a bunch of money and they were so risk averse that we ended up owning and operating the site and they licensed us their brand for a bunch of money guaranteed. And then we launched the thing. And all of that was very serendipitous because 
Had we done it a different way, they probably would have interfered with it because they didn't really understand new media. But because we were kind of left alone, just like my mother left me alone, the benign neglect theory won again. And so we built this incredible website and launched it on April 1st, 1995 on the web. And it was an instant overnight home run. What's so interesting, though, is that you come full circle, like you said, that you were so into sport and then you end up doing the uh, site for ESPN. But going back just a little bit, because the way you described yourself, you don't sound like the typical early Microsoft employee. The little that I know about Microsoft in the early days, it doesn't seem to be a good fit for you. How on earth did you end up there? It's a good question. Um, and, and you're basically right. Um, so what happened was, it's what's really funny about this, about going back in this, is that now I'm very close friends with Bill Gates. We do tons of stuff together. We have a house in the same country club in the Palm Springs area, and we basically are best friends. And when he talks about me now, he'll, he describes me as this guy who they all thought didn't fit into Microsoft because I was too lazy and too busy goofing off. And he goes, now we realize you just got all the work done in half the time of everyone else. <laughs> And I was like, now he tells me. I already knew that. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, I went to Stanford Business School. And the year I graduated, which was 1983, was the end of the Reagan recession. It was a really bad year. You know, if you went to Stanford Business School, you just kind of assumed you're going to get a great job in, you know, finance or consulting or something, or marketing. And that year, the winter of 82, uh, everybody cut back on their hiring. So all the Firms that usually hired five or six MBAs hired like one or not, like General Mills hired one instead of four. And, you know, all the consumer packaging companies cut back and the investment bankers cut back and the consulting firms cut back. And it was a bad year. It was, it was a really bad year. So I was interviewing around and in the spring of my second year of business school, I went home to Portland because my mother was having open heart surgery. And I wrangled a job interview at Nike because I'm from Portland and Phil Knight's a Stanford MBA and I idolized Nike and all I ever wanted to do in life was work for Nike. And I begged them and begged them and interviewed there for an hour and they just told me to fuck off, basically. <laughs> they were like, you didn't run a marathon, you're not cool, go away. You know, and I'm like, okay. So then I, Microsoft interviewed on campus one day, you know, at Stanford Business School, people just came on, you could interview. I interviewed with more companies I should have never worked for just because they were there. Right? You could just sign up on a piece of paper and go interview with some guy, you know? So like, I remember interviewing with like TRW and I was like, what do you guys do? You know, like, I don't even know what you do, you know, or like, you know, I was not cut from that cloth. So anyway, Microsoft interviewed on campus and they were starting to get into consumer software. The PC junior was about to come out. The Mac was coming soon, although no one knew it yet. And so they were interested in branching out from just selling software to businesses and selling recreational educational software. And the guy who interviewed me was the director of marketing, the guy who doesn't, who didn't work there past about 84, but at the time he was the director of marketing. And he liked me because I had, I'd worked for about a year before business school at a friend of mine's family business. That was the biggest brewery in Portland. I did consumer marketing for them. I wrote my senior thesis in college in the beer industry and consumer marketing and applied to a small brewery in Portland, the same one. And then I had written a business plan in the summer for a small hiking boot company that was repositioning itself in the industry that was headquartered in Berkeley and was the first company to ever import European hiking boots to the U.S. This is all so long ago. And so he was like, oh, this guy's got some consumer marketing chops. And he's an interesting guy. And so they asked me back to Microsoft. And so I flew up there in March and put on my interview suit. And in those days, Microsoft ran on email back when nobody ran on email. So most companies didn't even have email in 1983, but Microsoft 
every single employee had an email terminal and all they really did, since most of them were programmers, was either write code on a terminal or send email. So I would interview with some guy in his office and then I'd go to the next interview and behind my back, email would fly around saying, good guy, ask him about this, or he's a bozo, don't bother, or whatever it said. And so I went to like five interviews. Uh, most of them, you know, I was, uh, I now know that most of these people were on the spectrum. At the time, those, that terminology didn't really exist, right? And so I just thought they were weird. Um, I'm a little weird too, so I fit in. And then uh, the fifth guy was this guy named Jeff Rakes, who later became kind of a legend at Microsoft. And he asked me uh, his, what was then his standard product marketing interview question, which was, what's your personal positioning? Like, write me an ad for yourself. And this was the wrong question to ask me. <laughs> so I just, I mean, it was the right question to ask me. If there's ever a question I could, I could uh, kill, it was this question. And so I gave this wonderful answer about what a diamond in the rough I was and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, the way it worked was that after that interview, I just assumed that, you know, they'd put me in a taxi and fly me back to SeaTac and I'd fly back to Palo Alto and wait to hear from them. But no, what they did was they said, go in this room and wait here. That's all they said. So I went into this conference room in the first building that Microsoft had in, in uh, Bellevue. And there was a PC with Microsoft Flight Simulator on it, the very first version of Microsoft Flight Simulator, which is a little thing that went and you use the arrow keys to fly a little not around. And I just played with it for like, I think an hour, an hour probably, at least an hour. And I thought maybe there's a hidden camera, there's an aptitude test. I really didn't know what was going on. And after about an hour, Steve Ballmer walked in, who I'd never met. I didn't meet Bill that day, but Steve Ballmer, who was kind of the number two guy, walked in. And uh, I knew he was a Stanford MBA and I knew who he was, but I didn't really know him. And um, he sits down, he's sort of super hyper and busy and how you doing, you know, and he goes, look, just talk to me about your life. Don't talk to me about work or anything. And I'm like, what? And so as you may have deduced, I have a photographic memory. And so I literally could tell you the score of seventh grade basketball games I was in. I mean, it's ridiculous. I wish I didn't, but I do. I tell you everything, every phone number from childhood, everything. So poor Steve Ballmer got my entire childhood. <laughs> he got, and, then in seventh, and then in seventh grade, I got made the varsity at middle school. About, you know, I was on and on and on. And so uh, he clearly had done the math that to get through my whole life was going to take like five hours. And so after about, I mean, I kind of lost track. I think he was the first person to ever ask me this question. Like, I was so excited to talk about myself. And so after about half an hour, he just stopped and he said, look, I've got to go. He opened a drawer. This wasn't even his office. It was just some random conference room with a desk in it. And he pulled out an offer letter. And it was created on a Wang word processor. And it was a congratulations, blah, blah, blah. Mike Slade had my address in Menlo Park, where I was going to grad school. And the salary and stock options were blank. And he scribbled in the salary. He scribbled in the stock options. He signed it. He handed it to me and he said, I hope you'll come here. I've got to go. And he laughed. That's crazy. <laughs> and, I, and I had no witnesses. I was like, uh. Like, and so I just kind of sat there in stunned silence for like, I don't know, 10 minutes. And then the secretary came in and said like, yeah, you can go now. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. Oh, where? And so that happened to me on a Friday. And on Monday, a guy who was a friend of mine from business school, who was from Seattle, Pete Higgins, uh, did the same thing. And I told him ahead of time what happened. And the same thing happened to him. Mm -hmm. 
So on Tuesday, we compared our job offers <laughs> and we stalled for a month and then we called Balmer together on a pay phone and said, yes. And the way Balmer, you know, people kind of like to hate on Balmer, but Microsoft would have never existed without Balmer because Bill was like, we have 40 employees. That's plenty. Why do we need to hire any more fucking people? Why don't they just work harder? You know, and Balmer was like, no, 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 no. We need people. And so he hired probably everybody until about, I don't know, a thousand or something. Like they didn't get hired unless he talked to them. And I ended up copying that when I ran Starwave. I wouldn't, I insisted on talking to everybody before they got hired. Every single person. Just like, I'm not. I don't care what he's doing or who, who she is. I need to like spend 20 minutes with them. Just talk about yourself. This is a really good idea. Yeah, I was going to say that's a good lesson, really. In, in it, it was the asshole test. He didn't want to hire any assholes. He still did, but less, probably less than he would have. No. Mm. Well, that's true. So that's some, how I got to my point. Some people can't spot the assholes either, whereas I imagine some people are quite astute and can spot them a mile off. My understanding is you actually joined Microsoft on the eve of the Microsoft Word launch. Is that right, first of all? Because you were thrown. Yeah, I think I told that story in the podcast. So I got married uh, that summer. I graduated from business school in June. I got married in July. My wife and I took a month-long honeymoon in Europe. It was more like a trip to Europe than a honeymoon, right? You know, we we biked. We stayed with my cousin in London. Friends of ours met us. We went to Portugal. And I had it all set up that I would start work uh the Tuesday after Labor Day weekend, which in the U.S. is the first weekend of September. So Tuesday, September 6th, 1983, believe it or not, I know the date. And so we landed in Seattle on Friday night. I lived in Portland, but my brother lived in Seattle and he picked us up at the airport. We had two bicycles in boxes because we'd been biking in Scotland for a week. And um, we had a reservation at the Ramada Inn, which was then right next to the Microsoft building. And uh, and I'd stayed there in March for an interview. So it was only six months later. I knew exactly where it was. And my brother knew where it was. So we got there and we had our bikes and our boxes and our luggage. And it was 1130 on Friday night of, of a holiday weekend. And the Ramada was there and they were like, Mike who? Never heard of you. With no reservation, nothing. And like, they had told me it was prepaid and everything. And I didn't have any money, right? And I was broke. And so I was like, uh-oh. So the Microsoft building is, was, is literally next door. It's like a hundred feet away. So I walked next door and then the, that first building, which is still there, but not owned by occupied by Microsoft anymore, is a two-story tilt-up building, and underneath is kind of a daylight basement parking area. Like it's not enclosed, but it's kind of semi-basementy, but you can see into it, right? And so you can just walk in there. And then at the bottom of it, in the middle, is an elevator. And outside the elevator, which is locked, and there's like a card key thing, there's a um, phone. And it's one of those phones that in those days they were had what's called a night bell, and so you could pick up the phone and it would ring throughout the building until someone answered it. That's how you got in. And I didn't know that. I just picked it up and dialed zero and it rang and it rang and it rang and it rang. And then about the 20th ring, uh, somebody answered the phone and he goes, Jeff Rakes and Jeff Rakes who I'd interviewed with. Right. And I'm like, Jeff Rakes. And he goes, yeah. And I go, this is Mike Slate. And he's like, what can I do for you? Because it's Friday night, 1130 Labor Day weekend. And I'm like, Oh, I just got back from my honeymoon. I'm here. I'm in the garage. Uh, hotels never heard of me, blah, 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 you know, like that, whatever. And he's like, I'm in a meeting. Just tell them we'll pay for it. Bye. And click. <laughs> so I go to my wife. 
I go, D, I got good news and bad news. The good news is we got a hotel room. The bad news is he's in a meeting. (laughs) So I have a feeling the pace this year is going to be a little bit off plan for what I had in mind of just biking and skiing and screwing. (laughs) Yeah, that's one way to return back to earth from your honeymoon, isn't it? And it turned out that was the weekend they were launching Word. And so they were all there all night, all weekend, the whole thing, which I didn't know. And I was like, Jesus, you know. (laughs) This is how it's going to be. Um, so yeah. you you stayed at Microsoft for a good seven years, I think. What were some highlights? Seven, seven and a half, yeah, right. And what would you oh, say well, were I some entered, of the highlights? Well, I entered a Excel. So I mean, what happened was my first job was I was the I was in the product manager for Flight Simulator, and then which was really a fun job, and I got to do I learned everything. I I wrote the manual, I met the developer, I debugged it, I did everything, and launched it, and did a marketing plan and everything. It was really fun, super successful, small project. And then what happened was the guy in charge of the Mac products laughed, thank God, because it was a disaster. And they, they had the Mac products brought into the main product marketing organization, and they gave me two of them to manage, which were multi-plan and chart and spreadsheet and the charting program. And then we were working on the secret product called Excel, which was a PC-based product to compete with Lotus 1, 2, 3. And they made this decision to make it a graphical product based on the Mac to kind of do an end run around Lotus 1, 2, 3's dominance on the PC, because it would be more different. And they put me in charge of it, which was a huge opportunity, even though it was kind of a strange project. So my job was to be the product champion inside the company and marshal resources and figure out the marketing plan. And one of my main jobs was to make everyone at Apple like us and like uh, Excel because they Lotus was doing a competing product, which had some flaws. And so it turned out that the fact that I was nice and funny and charming which wasn't really much of an asset at Microsoft, was a huge asset outside the company. And it turned out that the guy who was the product manager for this Lotus product, Lotus Jazz, who a guy who's now, I know, and I'm friendly with Eric Bedell, was kind of a stiffer East Coast kind of a guy. He wore a suit and like, you know, I wore khakis. And anyway, so it turned, and the head evangelist at Apple at the time was a guy I'd been in business school with, Matt Cobb, who'd been turned down by Microsoft. And so we were buddies. And so I just made friends with all these people and I came up with this marketing plan where we said something kind of outrageous. We said that Excel on a Mac is better than Lotus 1, 2, 3 on a PC, not equal, but better, which was not really a, the original positioning of the Mac. It was supposed to be all about use and use, but I was like, no, no, no. Any self-respecting spreadsheet jock, you can do more on this thing because it's graphical and it's got all these extra features, which would have been hard to do with that graphical user interface. And, you know, you're wrong. It has got addresses more memory. It has more rows and columns. It has linked spreadsheets. It has macros. It has charts. It's all these things like blah, blah, blah. And this was a very audacious positioning, which in fact, people at Microsoft didn't like. Ballmer was against it. He was like, that's going to hurt PC sales. And I'm like, not my problem. You know, mm-hmm. my job is to sell. I go, why don't we just cancel it? I said that in the meeting. I go, oh, let's just cancel it then. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, do you want me to? So you tell me to do a shitty job or a good job? I was a snarky asshole to him and actually shut him up, which was good. So anyway. <laughs> Uh, that was the highlight because it was so much fun. It was so successful. And it was Microsoft's first win, really. At the time, Word was kind of in third place and had lots of bugs and stuff. And we'd never really wanted anything with consumers. And so, or I guess you'd call them business consumers. And so that was super fun. And the only thing that was kind of sad about it was that in the middle of a launch, Apple fired Steve. And so Apple became a much less cool place when they fired Steve, who I had only met like once at the time. But like, you know, you can just kind of tell it got different, you know, it got more corporate and Scully was kind of a boring guy who thought his shit didn't stink. And, you know, the whole thing was just different. And Apple guys were trying to leave. It was just like not as much fun. Anyway, 
that was a real highlight. And tell me, because you, obviously, like you said, you'd met Steve Jobs at this stage. Why did you leave Microsoft? Because for most people, it would have been quite a cushy little job. Uh, and you went from Microsoft, was. which was obviously a big organization by then, to go and join Next in 1991. Why, why leave and what, how did you end up at Next? You know, it's funny that you said I wasn't the kind of typical person at Microsoft because I wasn't. And so as Microsoft got bigger, a friend of mine, a guy named Bruce Jacobson, once summarized what they wanted. They either wanted tech geeks or super organized, buttoned up business guys. Those are the only two recipes for success there. And I was clearly neither of them. I was I was a, more of a free spirit entrepreneur and a creative guy. And you have to remember that at the time, the whole business was about selling to businesses, not to consumers. There was very little consumer marketing in the way that we think about it now. It was all like, talk to the corporations, do ads in Business Week and Fortune Magazine, talk about features and benefits and save people money. And, you know, so it was very uh, customers always right kind of stuff. And, you know, there was like a cult of people who um, kept really great daytimers. Remember the cult about filofaxes and daytimers? Remember all that? I do, yes. Yeah, so that was a big deal at Microsoft. In fact, there was some company long gone now, not Filofax, that everybody at Microsoft fell in love with and it was a cult. And, you know, you'd be in a meeting and you'd watch somebody scribbling in their daytimer. I used to laugh if they were writing down in their daytimer, update to-do list. But, you know, <laughs> I like, you know, and I just, I, I have a good memory. I was like, this is stupid, you know? And so anyway, when I started working at Microsoft, it was 400 people. And when I left, it was 9,000. And I was a director of marketing for Windows. And I just fucking hated everything about it. I literally, I hated going to work. It was depressing. It didn't matter what I did. The strategy was changing all the time. All you did was argue with people inside the company. I was making literally millions of dollars a year in stock options. And I like didn't care. I just didn't care. I wanted to get the hell out of there. My mother was dying of cancer. That was depressing. So I just wanted out. And so what had happened was I met Steve a couple times when he was at Apple uh, with Bill in Hawaii at a sales meeting. And then in a meeting where we first showed them Excel, he was at the Excel intro, which was May 2nd, 1985 at Tavern on the Green and did a great job and was super charming and salesy. And then in about 88, he called uh, my friend Pete Higgins and asked him if you wanted to run marketing at Next. And Pete said, no, I like Microsoft. You should call my friend Mike. He's the one who launched Excel. And Steve remembered me, so he called me. And so I went through like a two-year flirtation with him. I spent the night at his house. I rollerbladed around Palo Alto with him and Lorene. You know, I did all sorts of shit with Steve. And we became best friends. And then I turned him down. And then I finally said yes. And so I just didn't, I kind of like, there were sort of two things going on. I was, I found working at Microsoft depressing and I found that the, the personal qualities that I liked in myself were kind of negatives there. And later on, they might not have been when the internet came and it was more consumer focused, but that would have been like four or five more years. And so, uh, it was weird. I felt like, well, you know, um, this is kind of bad for my self-esteem. And I, I need to be, uh, and uh, the other thing I think, which was kind of unique to my personality was that if a company is like a series of concentric rings, like in a tree, right? I was like one ring away from the inner circle. Most people would have given their right arm to be as close to the inner circle as I was, but I wasn't as inner circle as I wanted to be. I wanted to be in the inner circle, right? And so 
I was kind of a medium-sized fish in a big pond at Microsoft. And then when I went to Next, I was like a gigantic fish in a pond where, and I swear, really a lot of times, the only people making decisions were Steve and I. And so it was like an IV injection of charisma and challenge and intellectual stimulation and craziness. And it was like so much fun. I mean, like I probably worked twice as hard at Next as I ever worked at Microsoft. And I was there all the time. And Steve was super challenging and super smart and very creative. And the weirdest thing was, you know, Steve has this rep as a guy who's a real jerk and he was the most loving boss. I mean, the guy heaped praise on me. I probably got more praise from him in 18 months than I got in eight years from everyone in Microsoft combined. He was willing and honest and open about his emotions, whether they were positive or negative. Do you think in part that's because obviously you you might not have known him that well when he was at Apple, but do you think getting kicked out of Apple changed him? Yeah, I think what actually changed him more was next failing. Because what happened was, and Brent Slender kind of talks about it in the book, when he got back to Apple the second time, he consistently didn't make the same mistakes he'd made before. He had chances to, and he didn't. And so he kept his team together. He was mature. He was more cautious. And so, you know, the first time he was at Apple, he wasn't really the CEO. He was kind of like, you know, Prince Charles. And they, a series of older guys before Scully kind of ran the day-to-day -day stuff. And then Steve just ran around and did whatever he wanted to do. He, he, he messed around with Lisa for a while. He ran off with the Mac project, you know, but he wasn't really, I mean, he was chairman, but he didn't care about Apple too. And he was like, you know, he just was like, he was a child basically. And he was a tyrant. And then at Next, he was the CEO and he made a ton of stupid decisions and spectacularly bad business decisions because he was basically in the wrong business. He was in a business of selling workstations to businesses and research institutions and the CIA and the NSA and not to consumers. But if ever anyone was put on this earth to sell things to consumers, it was Steve Jobs. And so... When he got back to Apple, the first thing he did was figure out how to make more money off the towers and the power books, which were the high margin computers. And then he figured out how to get consumers to care again, first with the iMac and then with the iBook and then with the iPod and then et cetera, et cetera. And so he really benefited at Apple from two things. One was that he had made all these mistakes at Next, some because he was a rookie CEO and some because... He was trying to sell the businesses, which wasn't where his instincts helped him. And the second thing that helped him a lot was over half his executive team at Apple were from Next, so he could trust them. Because he'd been betrayed a lot in his career by people who'd stabbed him in the back, and you could tell he was, he was wary of it, very wary, and with good reason, by the way. It's the way you should be. But so, you know, you had... Uh, Nancy Heine had run legal at Next. You had Sina Tamadin, who ran apps at Apple and had been the head of system engineering at Next. Avi Tuanian ran software at Next. John Rubenstein ran hardware at Next. I ran marketing at Next, right? So half his executive team every day, he already knew and trusted. Mm. Like trusted implicitly, right? And so that, those were, and those, by the way, that team stayed together for a long time, like way longer than most companies, right? And so... I think he learned those two things. And he, even though he didn't really delegate like a typical CEO did, he did delegate more at Apple than he did before. He was willing to like, you know, at least listen to people before he decided stuff. But the other thing he did 
which I always tell people like, this is the lesser of two evils is he was like, okay, I'm deciding this shit. You don't have to like it. You can go, but I am deciding. Okay. There's not going to be some committee. Okay. I'm deciding. If you don't like it, you'll fire me, but I'm in charge. But that's how some founders actually lose their way a bit. Some are very good at delegating and it works out well, but there are some that are delegating too quickly and then find out that it all goes a bit wrong. I think it's much better to be open and upfront. And when you were saying earlier about how Steve was actually praising you and a lot nicer than some of the uh, stories that go around about what a tyrant he was, I don't think there's any denying. Based on kind of conversations I've had with people that worked with him, he definitely was a tyrant. Just, you know, I don't even know. By these, by these standards today, he would probably be seen way more of a tyrant. Back in the day when there was less HR and legal issues, he was probably bad. But now he would be really bad. But on the flip side, all the people that I've interviewed that work with him are incredibly nice, soft-natured human beings who all actually said he was brilliant and that they had their best years of their career working with him. So there's no way the whole portrayal, as you know, because you knew him, that the media portrayal of him, what you see in these terrible films that have come out since his death, you know, they can't be accurate because no one would have worked with him at all if he was as bad as they made out. The thing that people, uh, when he died, um, you know, they had a small 50-person private funeral, which I went to, I was really honored to go to. And then they had about a six or 700-person invite-only funeral at Stanford Memorial Church, which was kind of like an Apple event. It was very well organized. Yo-Yo Ma was the MC. Bono played. Joan Baez played. And his, his widow, Lorene, spoke. And she gave this very interesting talk, which hasn't been written about very much. But like the talk that his sister Mona gave has been written up was in the New York Times about you know how she met him and everything. But Lorene's talk was really interesting because it was sort of an intellectual essay on what drove him and how he was a really aesthetically driven person. And he did a lot of things that she said in sort of poetic language, pissed people off, but were just in search of beauty. And that's kind of a really... And it was from his wife. So what does she know, right? And so it was a really, it's really all her eulogy said. She didn't, it wasn't really about missing him or grief. It was about explaining him to people in this really very left brain way. And I remember at the time thinking like, this is quite remarkable because it's not what you'd expect, right? And it was because that really is what, mo I, like when I worked at Next, he and I used to, we would take a break and we would walk the parking lot and all we would do is critique the design of every car in the parking lot for like an hour, just out of sport, just because it was fun to do. Like I would have done this rear end a little differently. This fender flare isn't big enough. You know, what do you think about these headlights? You know, like that's the kind of guy he was, right? Instead of talking about sports or something, that's what he wanted to do was like critique things that were beautiful. It's really interesting. I actually have a quote from her remarks at the memorial because I wanted to bring it up. So I was going to ask you because everyone knows about uh, Steve's obsession with aesthetic. Um, but like you said, Lorene had actually said at the memorial, she said, it is, well, this is just part of it, obviously, but she said, it is hard enough to see what is already there to remove the many impediments to a clear view of reality. But Steve's gift was even greater. He saw clearly what was not there, what could be there, what had to be there. He imagined what reality lacked and he set out to remedy it. That's yeah. really well done. No, I totally agree. He was really... Uh... Oh, you know, I'll give you an example. You know, I'm at Next. It's 1991. We're about to go out of fucking business. Well, every day is a crisis. 
And nobody can find Steve for like two hours. And then I find him. He's left a meeting at next. I go, what's up? And he goes, we're making a movie. And I'm like, huh? We make workstations, dude. And he goes, no, no, no. Pixar, my other company, we're making a movie with Disney. And I'm like, what are you talking about? A movie? And he starts talking to me about the Toy Story deal. This is 1991, okay? How we're going to make the world's first three completely 3D computer-generated movie, and it's with Disney, and it's a, it's a pretty good deal, and we'll be able to reuse all the characters, not have to pay the actors. And he goes on and on and on. And I thought he was like, had like, you know, I thought he was on, I thought he was high on mushrooms. I was like, I had no idea what the fuck he was talking about. And that's an example where he was obsessed with the fact that you can tell any story that way that you couldn't tell any other. It was exactly the same thing, right? Mm. He wasn't just giddy because he'd done a deal. He was so excited about how cool it can be. It was just like, you know, pure, joyful enthusiasm. Mm. I've heard you say before that the difference between, well, I mean, there were lots of differences between Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, but I would imagine that was a big one that Steve was someone that could be extremely joyful and excited, almost childlike, which is always a wonderful character. Well, Bill is like that now. Bill is like that now. He's now more he's like, a lot like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But when he was at, at Microsoft, I think he was, um, well, I mean, look, one of the things about Bill Gates, which is people have written about a little bit, but it's really quite remarkable, is that when he was like a middle schooler, he and his best friend would read CEO biographies. You know, like John D. Rockefeller, Thomas Edison, um, you know, uh, Henry Ford, right? And that, that's what they idolized. And they would sit there and speculate what kind of CEO they should become. Okay, have you ever met a seventh grader like that in your life? No, that's the only one I've ever met. I said, I go, I go, I go it's super. So people think Bill is just a tech weenie. And obviously he's super technical and was a brilliant programmer. But he, he wanted to be a CEO. He didn't want to be a tech weenie. He wanted to dominate. And software happened to be a brand new greenfield that he was good at, right? You know. Because being a CEO is not always that much fun, okay? It's lonely. The best ones are a little bit of a sociopath sometimes, right? You know, it's kind of a weird mixture of Captain Queeg and kind of, you know, uh, you have to be super driven at all costs. And so anyway, that's what he always wanted to do. And so, he, so if you're a CEO, it's like you want to win, right? You got to win. Steve of course, wanted to win, but he wanted to win on his own terms. You know, Steve was like, we're going to build a phone without any buttons. Okay. So, and you better like it because it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. he, he didn't care what market research said or what the carriers told him to do or any of that kind of thing. Right? But he just was like, we're going to do it right. We aren't going to build a, a music player that holds 50 songs because it's cheap. We're going to build one that holds a thousand songs and it's expensive because that's the right thing to do. They're so successful, obviously, in their own rights, but so many differences and you must have learned a lot from both of them someone else who I think you would have learned a lot from was Paul Allen and he's someone that I historically have known so very little about I wondered if you could tell me what was he like and how did you get involved in setting up a business with him yeah good question so you know Paul of course was the co-founder of Microsoft and famously if it hadn't been for Paul there wouldn't have been a Microsoft because he was the one who found the popular science article in the Harvard Square newsstand and showed it to Bill that there was first time a microprocessor-based kit that you could build a, a little PC with and said, we can do this, we can do this. And he urged Bill to drop out and do this, to start a software company. And so in the, which is kind of, because Bill was like a sophomore at Harvard, it's kind of hard to believe. But anyway, so they did do that. So without Paul, there would never have been Microsoft and probably never been a software industry. 
And so when I got to know Paul, when I came to Microsoft in 1983, like I knew who he was, right? Because Microsoft was already reasonably well known, although it wasn't public or anything. And he had an office down the hall from me, but he'd gotten Hodgkin's disease and taken some time off from Microsoft. And when he came back, he wasn't really number two anymore. Balmer was. And so what had happened was Paul kind of ran R&D and Bill was the CEO. And Paul famously didn't work as hard as Bill because nobody did. And then Paul probably didn't even work half as hard, right? Just because Bill worked so hard. So they would bitch and moan when he didn't come to work early enough. And, you know, so anyway, so Balmer came along and was the best thing that ever happened to Bill because he was just motivated and bright and just uh, driven as Bill. And so they started building this juggernaut of a company. And so when Paul came back, like when I got there in September of 1983, he was the EVP of R&D, but no one reported to him. And so I was told if you had any memo about anything to do with a product, you got to copy Paul on it. And I was like, okay. So he had this giant office that was down the hall from mine. And, you know, in the first six months I worked there, I bet I saw him like three or four times, maybe total. One time I had a TV in my office, an actual television, because I was the flight simulator product manager. And it ran in more colors on a TV, thanks to this technology called dithering, than I did on a PC where it only ran in four colors. I know these stats are laughable, but this is 1983. So anyway... I had a TV to test it. And so I was there one night, late at night working, and Paul walked by my office and he thought I was watching television. <laughs> he came to my office. He's like, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm like, I was fucking around. And I was like, I'm testing flight simulator. And so we talked for like five minutes. And he's like, cool. He like kind of apologized and left. And then not that long afterwards, his father died and then he left Microsoft and he started this company called Asymmetrics, which did a bunch of different things and was sort of competitive with Microsoft. And then it wasn't, and then it ended up scaling back its operations and launching a Windows-based version of HyperCard called Toolbook. So I got to know Paul because in 1988, one day I knew Bill pretty well by then and Bill goes, Hey, did you hear Paul's buying the Portland Trailblazers, which is the NBA team in Portland, my hometown? And I'm like, what? And, you know, having grown up in Portland, it was the only pro sports team. They won the NBA title with Bill Walton. It was like, you know, woven into the fabric of my DNA is the Portland Trailblazers, okay? And, of course, I used to be a sports writer, right? So I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And he goes, write him an email. And I go, okay. So I wrote Paul, like, I don't know, 200, 300 line email, a really long email, right? <laughs> about the Blazers and Portland and Bill Walton and the heartbreak and the city and literally my life story. I mean, this is just an absolute masterpiece. And I got this like one line reply. So like, thanks, Paul. And I'm like, okay. So then like the first season of Paul owning the Blazers starts and that's 1988, 89 season. And in early 89, I'm just typing away at my computer one day and I get an email from Paul Allen. And it says, do you want to go to the Blazer game tonight? And I'm like, are we playing Seattle? Like, what's going on? And I'm like, sure. Are we driving? Because, you know, it's 180 miles away, right? And he goes, no, we're flying. And I'm like, okay, I'll meet you at the airport. He goes, no, 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 I have a private jet. And I'm like, what's a private jet? <laughs> so that was my first private jet ride ever. We rode in Charles Simone's Lear 2, which had no bathroom, from Boeing Field down to Portland, watched the game, flew home. And I was like, this is better than sex. This is like the best day of my life. Okay. <laughs> it's midnight. I'm back home. I've been to my hometown. 
sitting courtside in front of all my friends watching the Blazers with Paul Allen. I'm like, what could be more fun? And so he started, and I'm, you know, I wasn't faking it. I was a really enthusiastic Blazer fan. And I used to laugh and tell him I was the only person he ever knew who was a Blazer fan before Paul was. <laughs> Just, I didn't become one because he bought the team. So anyway, we went to a few games together. And then the next year, which was his second year owning the team, which was the 89-90 season, they went all the way to the NBA Finals. And so they probably played 25 playoff games. I went to every home playoff game with him. You know, there was a lot of times as they made their way through the playoffs, the jet was Paul, Bill, Balmer, and me. And I was like, what am I doing on this jet? And so we became really good friends. And because I was such a hardcore basketball fan and, you know, he, he knew I was a successful guy at Microsoft. And then when I left Microsoft, he tried to get me to come to work for him, but I was committed to working for Steve. So I worked for Steve. And then we stayed in touch and I emailed him once in a while. And then, you know, the Blazers went to the NBA finals twice during those years when I was at Next. And when Next started to implode, which was late 92, I kind of predicted to Steve that in a few months he'd have to be out of the hardware business and strength the company, all of which came true. And so Paul emailed me and said, do you want to come work for me? And so I had another job offer with a company in Seattle called Aldous, which made PageMaker. And I was looking around in the valley. And then Paul said, why don't you come work for me? And we interviewed and we kind of flirted in the yard. So I kind of went there on a wing and a prayer. All it was, was you're a really smart guy. I'm a billionaire. We're going to do lots of cool shit. You find something you like, you run it, I'll fund it. There was no percentage, no nothing. It was all handshake. But he paid me, he paid me a good salary to be his like EVP of special projects or something. And so I went and did it and it worked out. So it was kind of a crazy thing to do. And Paul had a bad rep as a flake and a guy you couldn't trust and, you know, dilettante. And, but, you know, I laugh in 1993, there weren't many billionaires, you know, mm -hmm. now they're a dime a dozen. Right. But then there weren't many, he was an actual billionaire, right. Mm -hmm. With no ties to anything, but he was a challenging guy to work for in some respects that he wasn't. He'd never really run anything. You know, he left Microsoft and it was pretty small. So here was a guy who had so much money, but he didn't really know how companies ran because he'd never done it, right? If you know what I mean. I'm not mm -hmm. saying he was a bad guy. He just didn't actually understand about managing people and why things took longer than you thought and how just because it was a good idea, I mean, it would happen. He was the kind of guy who would like have 500 ideas. When we sat down that one day, to figure out what Starway was going to be, we brainstormed for five hours in his office and we had this whiteboard full of ideas and we picked 10 and I swear he had 50 on the whiteboard, you know, many of which were good ideas, but you know, who knew, right? And I had to keep scaling it back one and figuring out how would you get there from here and you know, what we do and everything, you know, and the kind of guy he was, was he came up with these ideas and he goes, okay, let's do it. And I'm like, do what? And he goes, do this, start, go for it, start hiring people. And they go, okay. And he goes, how much money do you need? And like, I was thinking like, I have no fucking idea. But I said, uh, 50 million. And he said, okay, great. And like, meeting was over. Mm, crazy. <laughs> like, should have said 200 million. Yeah. Like, I picked something that wasn't too large a percentage of his net worth. It had nothing to do with how hard, <laughs> any math about the magnitude of the project. So he was a guy who was funny, fun, kind of in a bad mood more than not. Like he was, he never married. He was always kind of had a chip in his shoulder about Bill being more famous than him. He was a complicated guy, sweet guy, really generous to me. And, you know, uh, by far, one of the really funny things is, remember I made the comment about benign neglect, right? Yeah. Well, that's what he was as an owner, right? He just, 
he would bitch and moan about shit, but mostly he just left us alone. And that was the best thing he could have done. It was all harder than you thought, took longer than you thought, and yeah. it worked out great. So when he died, I, I wrote on Facebook, I said, you know, who else would have been this patient? He let me build the world's coolest company on my own terms. And if you meet anybody who worked at Starwave in Seattle, there are probably 400 of them, they'll all tell you it was the most fun they ever had. I wish the world knew more about him because I feel like he's almost been neglected throughout tech history. And I'm sure partly it's because he was a private person. Well, know? he also had some spectacular failures. He lost $8 billion on cable. You know, he's like, <laughs> you know, DreamWorks wasn't really a very good investment. You know, Katzenberg kind of snuck her down. And, you know, he, he, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that he, like the sports teams might be his best investment ever, right? Mm. They'll probably make billions on those, you know, just because of when he bought them. But he wasn't without his flaws, but he was a very, very idealistic guy in some respects. His art collection was just phenomenal, right? And he kind of like, um, I think because he didn't ever get married, he didn't know that thing where you just kind of like give in and say, I'm just going to trust this person. I hope it works. You know, if, you know, you're married, right? So, you know, yeah. or we're, I don't know, but you know, it, it's not easy to do, right? It's kind of yeah. scary, right? Mm. Uh, and there's always disappointments and stuff, but you just, it, you know, I mean, I don't know. It's kind of like jumping off a cliff, right? Getting married. Mm. Oh, hundred percent. Right? Like anything. <laughs> yeah. Right. And sometimes I mean, you know it's I mean, a hard right? landing. Yeah. No, yeah. exactly. Of course, no, half the time, 50% of the time, right? But my point is that I think he would have been better off even if he had failed by doing that. Mm. Uh, but he was chicken. Because um, he didn't trust anybody. He thought I was trying to screw him at the end. You know, when we sold the company to Disney, he somehow thought I was in cahoots with Disney, even though he and I were the two biggest shareholders of Starwave. And I was like, dude, like, think about it. How could my interests be any more aligned with yours than this? Yeah, we both, mm. I have all my net worth is in the same stock that you own. Okay. So like, you know, you had to like explain stuff to him and kind of hit him over the head with stuff. Right. Mm. He worried all the time. Yeah. I wonder where he got that from, because my understanding is that I think Bill treated him pretty fairly. That's my understanding at Microsoft. And even when, no. Bill, oh no, no. Okay. There's, a, there's a story in Paul's book, which is sort of true and sort of not true, where when Microsoft was about to go public, they tried to get Paul to sell his stock back to Microsoft. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I heard that. Ball, and he said no. Right, and so Balmer went and asked him. And so, I mean, on the one hand, you know, if you're Microsoft, that's a pretty pragmatic thing to try because you get 20% of the stock back, right? Mm. And Paul hadn't really been there a long time, whatever. And on the other hand, since they knew more about the value of it than he did, you know, maybe it's unethical. Who knows, mm. right? I don't know. So anyway, yeah. I think that added to his paranoia. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Like, you know, I mean, I, I'm not saying it was good or bad. It mostly not good. But I'm just saying, if I was Paul, and he was kind of paranoid anyway, I think. And, you know, he, you know and I, like I said, because he never married, I think it's, it's too bad that he had a life partner who... <laughs> you know, could at least be like, hey, I'm on your team, buddy. You yeah. know? Um, so, and I think he, you know, he also, the stuff he really liked to do, you know, was like jam with musicians and have fun and, you know, be kind of a fun, introverted, goofy guy. And, you know, to be a business tech mogul was different than that. And, you know, so I think he was always torn about what he was supposed to do versus what he really was. He was more of a dreamer than a, like a hard charging, you know, exec. Right. Mm. And really, so so many good ideas and so funny and fun one on one. Like we would just laugh out loud one on one. It's just like really fun. 
You've definitely worked with some very interesting characters throughout your career. Yeah, what would you th- say- those three are pretty amazing. Right? What lessons did you take from each of them, would you say? Well, you know, Bill's probably the smartest person I've ever met. You know, Bill's like, A, he's a brilliant processor of information. B, he's incredibly hardworking and disciplined and has high executive function. He's not disorganized. He's super organized about everything. And C, he's the best person at synthesizing and explaining complicated things I've ever met in my life, more than any professor or than anyone. When Bill explains something to you that he's learned about, you don't need to read all the book. I mean, unless he's bullshitting, which could happen once in a while. But like he, he's so good at synthesizing information, it's scary. And I remember one time asking him a question about some topic. Maybe it was early people worrying about climate change. I can't remember. He goes, I've read four books on this. I have three more to read, so I don't really know yet. <laughs> I'm like, well, I read an article in Newsweek, you know, like I know everything, right? So if nothing else... One of the things you learn from hanging out with Bill is that like, there's no excuse for not being informed and it's all available if you just do the work, right? You know, it's like, you can be informed, right? And so I'm, I was always kind of like that, but now I'm really like that. I'm like, if you're not informed, there's just no excuse for you. You're just a pathetic excuse for a human being. Go get, go get organized, go get, you know, go get informed, you know? Uh, I, I was playing golf one time during the pandemic with a guy, cause we, Bill and I belong to the same country club in the desert. And this guy was a guy from Chicago who was a really successful guy who happened to have a kid who was autistic. And he was part of that group of people that think that vaccines are why his kid was autistic, right? Which, mm-hmm. of course, isn't true. He had read Bobby Kennedy Jr.'s book and all this stuff. And he goes, you know, I heard that Bill Gates is putting trackers in the vaccine to track us. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, and this guy, like, you know, he, his house in the country club's like, you know, a quarter mile from Bill's house, you know? And I'm like, mm-hmm. I just looked at him and I said, well, you know, Chuck, uh, I think he would have told me. I don't know. I think he would have told me, you know, so I'm like, there's a guy who couldn't bother to be educated. Right. You know, I just had to be like, so anyway, uh, I mean, I can tell you a million lessons about Bill, but one of them is just that information is power, right? But, you know, before you make decisions, you can get educated about things. And a lot of people are too lazy or too uncreative or whatever the quality is to get educated. And it's so fun to know stuff. It sounds so obvious, right? Mm. One time we were playing this tennis thing down in the desert. And Bill was talking about something and giving a speech to like 50 guys, all of them were super successful guys. And we came back to the table afterwards and this one guy looks at Bill and he goes, how do you know all this stuff? (laughs) Bill goes, goes, there are these things made of paper with words on them and you can buy them. They're called books. Satirical wit, which is another thing I love about the guy because I'm the same way. So I guess that's one thing I really learned from Bill. Uh, You know, Steve... Of all the things I learned from Steve, uh, I guess the one that is the most powerful is that, you know, I'm, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of a pleaser, right? I want to please people and make them happy and take care of them. Mm-hmm. And he, Steve Jobs was the opposite. He was like, he wanted people to know what he thought. And so he never sugarcoated shit to make people feel good. He just told them what he thought because it's more efficient, right? And so it really helped me be courageous about being blunt. You don't have to be mean to be blunt, right? And Steve would do things that were so blunt to people in business meetings and it wouldn't backfire, it would work. I was always fascinated by, he'd tell somebody something about them or their business that you'd think like, oh, I would never say that. And the guy would thank him. 
<laughs> because he was right, you know, mm. like going to therapy or something. And so I always, after that, when I ran my own company, I realized that, you know, being blunt is a gift. It's not a, a bad thing. It's a good thing because you don't get very much blunt feedback into the business world or even in your personal life. Right. Mm. And so when you do, it's kind of a gift because you found out something you wouldn't have otherwise known. Right. And that's mm. up to you if you can act on it. And then the other thing about Steve I found, and this will sound really weird, is that I always felt like when I worked at Microsoft, like there was something wrong with me because I couldn't figure out my work-life balance. Like I was too obsessed with work and I thought work was a place where I could find love and, you know, and all this stuff. And, and then after I worked for Steve, I realized that like, no, that's good. <laughs> it's like, no, 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 this is good. Being crazy and passionate is the lesser of two evils. At least you're passionate about something, so right? Mm. Uh, yeah, so it's funny. I realized that not having work-life balance and being completely fucked up about it isn't all bad. I know that mm. sounds weird, but like I was like, no, no, this is good, right? Because it means that you care and you're passionate and you're going to give it all and increases the likelihood of success. And you know, now with work from home and Zoom and stuff, you know, there's no such thing as work-life balance anyway, but um, mm. this is back then. So- and, but the most thing I learned from Steve is I thought I'm a left brain guy, but I, cause I'm really unlocal and I'm actually quite creative. And I realized that I have a big right brain. He helped me do that. He sounds like, not a mentor, but he sounds like he gave you so much in the time that you spent with him. It was the greatest move I ever made. It cost me millions of dollars and it was the greatest thing I ever did. With myself. I never would have been a CEO if I hadn't gone to work for Steve. I would have just been a middle manager at Microsoft and probably taken up a hobby or something you know, bought a horse. I don't know. Uh, it's the greatest thing that ever happened to me in the sense that of turning me into who I am. And it's no, seriously, it really was. And he was a very loyal friend. That's the other thing that was just shocking to me was after I stopped working for him, he was such a loyal friend till the end. It was unbelievable what a loyal friend he was, you know, went out of his way to be a good friend to me, but didn't need me for anything. Right. It was just going out of his way to be a good friend. Uh, like, you know, it just taught me the value of doing that. It was just, it was amazing. Uh, mm. and, you know, I, I still know Lorene. She's a cool person, you know, and he was just like, you know, I mean, this is Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs and I sat in his living room, uh, in 1990 and listened to a bootleg of 17 different versions of Strawberry Fields Forever. And he's the only person I know in this world who would do that with me. And I'm probably the only person. Mm. <laughs> I remember Lorraine was dating him at the time. She wasn't married yet. And she walks by and she goes, you guys are weird. <laughs> <Still walks. laughs> and we're like, yeah, we know. Um, That's so nice. Um, so anyway, yeah, it was, I was very, you know, I did it on kind of a whim. It could have spectacularly backfired, but it was really a cool, and next wasn't really a success, but it didn't really matter. And look, by the way, Next step is now in every Mac, iPhone, and soon to be Apple Vision Pro. It's all the same code. Mm. So this is yeah, it. When some people code. think certain companies are failures for whatever reason, then you actually look a bit deep and you realize it's not at all. You know, I, I have watched and read and interviewed people that worked at General Magic, and they talk about it being the Silicon Valley's kind of most famous failure. And then you realize how so much came out of it that actually I don't think it could be considered in many ways, a failure. But it's so nice hearing you talk about Steve because whenever I talk to people that knew him, I always try and understand him better because I have a real problem. I'm always talking about this on the podcast. But I do feel like tech and media, you know, they'll often, I don't know, just put people in a bad light 
and then it becomes a never-ending narrative of what that person was like and it can be so far removed from the truth like someone can watch a film about Steve Jobs and think well that's him and then you speak to people that actually knew him they're like oh my god it was nothing like him I don't know how how they ended up putting it out so I appreciate that. Well, you know, like like you take like the Aaron Sorkin movie, you know, and, you know, Aaron Sorkin's good at writing speeches and not really good about facts. And, you know, mm. all, every single seminal moment in that movie never happened. Mm. Lisa wasn't there at the product launch. None of that shit. It all was made up. So he basically, the three key moments in the movie never actually happened. They're just fiction. And the mm. Facebook movie that he did, right? No, what's the premise of the Facebook movie? The premise is that Mark Zuckerberg created Facebook to pick up girls, right? And yet, in real life, he was already dating the woman he's yeah. now married to. Mm. So yeah. that was bullshit, too. That's why I hate that movie. And, mm. you know, I didn't mind Isaacson's book because he wrote it under very difficult circumstances, and I love his writing. But Brent's book was better because he knew Steve, right? Yeah. And and so he experienced stuff. So he got in a fight with him and all this shit. It was just, you know, it was magical. Yeah. Like, you know that famous picture of... Bill Gates and Steve Jobs in 1991 in Steve's living room. Yeah. Uh, that was in Fortune magazine. Well, that was Brent doing that interview. And I was there. I was there that day. And like, that's how well Brent knew Steve. That's why his book is, because his book answers the question of how did he go from a crappy CEO to a good one, right? Mm. Which is really the most interesting question. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, so I loved that book. Never mind how many great quotes I have in it. I loved it anyway. Oh, yes. But, um, I did. When I, when I was rereading it over the weekend, I, went to the back, looked up Slade. And I was like, oh, blimey. There's <laughs> just like a lot but, of pages. But, but, that's not, but, Bill had, but Bill has the best quote in it. Bill has the quote about it. Many people try to imitate Steve Jobs and they all, it's easy to get the asshole part right. It's a little more difficult to get the genius part right. Indeed. That's the best quote. Yeah. Well, wait a minute. You say that was the best quote. One of the things I had written down for my questions today was how in Becoming Steve Jobs, you actually, uh, you were talking about how Steve treated Bill Gates. And apparently in your words, you said he treated him like the fucking janitor, which I don't know, whenever I listen to uh, any podcast that you've done or I read anything that you've written, your humor comes across so well. because <laughs> You're he, very funny. So, you know, what happened at Apple was that, you know, when we started redoing Mac OS ten and everything, and started to build market share for the Mac it was right around the time Microsoft was doing Windows, we're doing Vista, right? And Vista was this total disaster that was late and shitty. And, you know, and so this was all because Balmer was kind of like exercising his management chops and pick kind of the wrong guy to run it and the whole thing had multiple agendas, just a disaster. So anyway, we would just sit there in these meetings, hoping Windows would keep fucking up, right? <laughs> it was a, no, if you watch that interview that Kara Swisher and Walt Mossberg did with Steve and Bill in 2007, two things about it are really clear. One is that by this time, Bill has realized that Steve has made a real comeback and that Apple's a remarkable company, not just a little flash in the pan. And he's realizing that Steve's closer to a peer of his than some guy who we beat, right? Mm. And, and they're very sweet to each other in that interview. Because, uh, you know, Steve had already gotten sick, and even though he didn't die for a few years. But what's really funny about that interview is that if you watch the whole thing near the end of it, they talk about phones, and the iPhone doesn't exist yet, right? It's been announced, but it doesn't exist yet. And people thought it was kind of a weird thing after the announcement, and who knew, right? And Bill talked about Windows Mobile and our strategy, and it all sounds super Microsoft-y and all kind of like, you know, we got this shit figured out, you know? 
And uh, if you look carefully, Steve just kind of has a little glint in his eye and kind of says like, well, we'll see, you know, like, because <laughs> he knows how cool the iPhone is. Yeah. He knows that like, so, I, you know, I went to that announcement and as it was in January, he emailed me and he was like, make sure you come to this. I'm like, I come to all your announcements. He goes, no, you really got to come to this one. I go, okay. So I come, I see him and we hug and it's the most amazing product launch ever. And so then you got this five month period where it's not out yet, right? So the only time Apple would ever pre-announce something and they did it because you have to get FCC approval, right? You have to test it publicly. So that's why they pre-announced it. And there was no product. They weren't hurting sales of some other products, so it didn't really matter. So anyway, there were all these articles about seeing one in the wild and Steve was at a soccer game with this kid and saw him playing with it and somebody took a photo of the zoom lens and you know. So in June, a month before it came out, my daughter, who was 14 at the time, went to Stanford swim camp. She was a swimmer. So I took her down there. And then I uh, arranged to go drop her off in the dorm and then go for a walk with Steve. It's on Saturday. So I do that and I show up at his house. And we go for a walk and we're walking around. We get some orange juice at Whole Foods. I'm sitting there talking on this park bench. And he goes, uh, want to see the iPhone? And I go, sure. And so he hands me it to play with. And I'm like, I'm just going to take this with me. <laughs> I'm not giving it back. And he goes, no, give it back. I go, okay. And I go, Steve, and this story kind of sums up Steve to me. So I say, Steve, you know, I remember in January, I showed you my Blackberry and you said, I can't wait to get rid of all these stupid little fucking buttons on this thing. And he said, that's not what I said. And I was like, yes, it is. I was there. And he goes, that's not what I said. He said, I didn't say I wanted to get rid of them. I said I wanted to move him around. And I was like, oh, he thinks he's Houdini, right? <laughs> and that's Steve Jobs, right? He's a showman. Right? And by the way, that is the better trick, right? Not getting rid of the buttons, but moving them all the time, right? The buttons move around from screen to screen. That's like literally magic, right? Mm. For a 2007, where you had like a phone with these little plastic buttons, and, you know. Uh, and that, to me, kind of sums up Steve. It's not like I want to do a better job. I want to wow people, right? I want to pull a rabbit under my head. And that moment has sort of stayed with me ever since that day. Like, I never really forgot it. It was such a vivid thing. Mm, there's a big hole in the world without him, I must say. And I'm sure those closest to him, like yourself, would feel it more. I wanted to ask one more question. And it's basically going back full circle to where we started. I ask everyone this. So if you could go back in time and give a younger Mike one piece of advice, whether it was you as a child or you in your first job, if you could go back in time, knowing all that you know now, what's one piece of advice you'd offer him? Yeah, that is a good question. Um, wow. Uh, you know, so much of the good things that happened to me were serendipitous. They weren't like, you know, I'm going to go do this and I did it. They're kind of like, it's sort of like a weird mixture of luck and creating your own luck. So I don't know. Um, I guess, you know, like, for a long time, I was kind of a slightly dissatisfied person, kind of cranky and wanting more. And I wish if I could go back in time, I'd tell that version of me to like enjoy the ride a little more. You know, like one day when I was running Star Wave, it was 1996, it was before Disney bought part of us and things were going pretty well. And a bunch of guys from ESPN were out for the week and we were all playing pickup basketball at lunch on the hoop court down in front of our offices in Bellevue. Sunny summer day, it was really fun. You know, it's like 10 of my people I love most in the business world. And I turned to all of them after one point and I said, you know, guys, uh, I was 39. And I said, you know, guys, you know what this is, right? And they go, what? And I go, these are the good old days right now which is a line from a Carly Simon song. But anyway, uh, 
And so I wish I'd done more of that then, just because it was true, right? It's true. But then as you get older, you realize that each decade has some good old days. We're constantly, I'm constantly looking back thinking, how the hell has 10 years just gone? And I feel that every decade now. So it's amazing. Well, yeah, what's really trippy for me is that, you know, I helped design iPhoto, right? And iPhoto, basically, my first digital photos are early 2000. And so my digital timeline starts in early 2000. My daughters are five and seven, and it just goes from there, right? How many pictures is it? It's like, you know, it's a, it's a crazy number of pictures and it's my whole life, right? Ever mm-hmm. since, because then you got an iPhone and, you know, and so it's, it's not, it's almost a hundred thousand pictures. And so yeah. what's weird is to go back, mm-hmm. if you ever do this, and it's better yeah. on a computer than your phone. You go back and you're like, wow, look at this. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I can look at some of these and I'm like, Seeing other people's look, you look at yourself and you're like, wow, what was I thinking that day? That was a good mood, a bad mood, you know? It's yeah. like, you know, it's fascinating. Mm. And I think people, I wish there was some way to like have it turn into some contextual thing, you know, where you could like surround sound yourself. Like, did you ever read Keith Richards' autobiography? No. So Keith Richard of the Rolling Stones wrote this fantastic autobiography. And the thing that's so interesting about it is, is that he, like me, is a great storyteller. And there's some really good stories in it. And what he does is when he's telling one of these really good stories, he has the other person in the story give their version of it in the book, right? It's just the greatest thing because it's just so fun because he's like, yeah, what did you think was going on? Like, you know, I was high on heroin or whatever, right? And uh, I, I wish there was some product that did that, you know, where like it would prompt you with like a video clip or a slideshow, then the 10 people that were there would all you know, annotate it for history forever, you know? Well, I mean, it could It'd be like a talk be show, It'd be like a talk show, Yeah, but could, I know you think yeah. about it. Right. Cause you know, everybody's still like, I have, a, I don't know about you. I have a text string of my nine closest friends from childhood. Right. Mm. And we text each other every day to this day and photos will pop up and we'll remember them and stuff. But you know, it's just so funny to think about, particularly since you have most people now have this memory thing on their device that goes back 10, 15, 20 years, right? Mm. It's kind of amazing to think about, right? Yeah, but I think it'd be really nice to have, because one thing that I think obviously is super sad, especially considering all the technology we have today, is that when we lose someone today, we lose them forever. And yet I... Yeah, no, I I totally agree. I I totally agree. I just think I would like my devices. I know most people want their devices not recording them. I want my devices recording me and my loved ones always and just so that if and when someone goes, I can have, I don't, I think with, I want a yeah, no, I know what you with mean. their voice. You know, uh, I don't know why we can't have it. Yeah, no, I, I totally know what you mean. I, I feel the same way. I, in 2019, I gave three eulogies, which wasn't fun. And it was lucky that I have a photographic memory because in each case, I just cranked up, you know, old, amazing stories that nobody knew about them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because... Mm-hmm. And it really, it was really, you know, it's kind of touching, but I know what you mean. Maybe I'll, maybe I should build that. It's a good idea. Well, please right. do. I think All you right. could. All okay. Right. Put that on your to-do list. Idea. All right. All right. I will. Mike, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah. It's great talking to you. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Mike Slade. And thank you to Mike for opening up about his time with some of tech's biggest icons, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, and Paul Allen. And don't forget, if you want to try out the new coaching app Wave, which I mentioned at the top of this episode, please do head to the show notes for the link. 
During this conversation with Mike, we talk about Brent Schlender and Rick Tetzeli's book on Steve Jobs. It's actually called The Evolution of a Reckless Art Star into a Visionary Leader, which I will link to in the show notes. And I thought I would leave you with a quote from it. The quote is from actually best-selling author Jim Collins, who in the book is discussing Steve and the role of luck. It reads, What separates people is the return on luck. What you do with it when you get it. What matters is how you play the hand you're dealt. You don't leave the game until it's not your choice. Steve Jobs had great luck at arriving at the birth of an industry. Then he had bad luck in getting booted out. But Steve played whatever hand he was dealt with to the best of his ability. Sometimes you create the hand by giving yourself challenges that will make you stronger, where you don't even know what's next. That's the beauty of the story. Steve's almost like the Tom Hanks character in Castaway. Just keep breathing because you don't know what the tide will bring you tomorrow.